You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. Thrilled to be with you tonight. This has been something since Pastor Reynolds invited me that I have looked forward to, because as he mentioned, this is a special place in my life. This is where I grew up, at least in my teenage years, and I'm thrilled to be with you. I want to tell a bit more about that in a little while, but introduce someone you, some of you probably know even better than me, and that's my wife, Kelly, and then our sons, and they're in a different order. I'm going to go order by age, or else I'll get their names wrong. You parents know how that works. I got Aaron. He's going into his second year of Bible college next week, and then on the opposite side there is Drew. He's a senior in high school, and there's Caleb. He is a freshman, and then right over here is uh, my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law, so I will be on best behavior tonight in front of you. I am being watched very closely. I've been watched closely for a long time. So, And then I saw him sneak in back there. My sister and Joe came in, and uh, my sister and brother-in-law, Becky, and uh, she spent many years here, and Dewanjai, it's good to see you. And a lot of uh, familiar faces in my life. I'm glad to see all of you. I have a lot of stories I could tell. I have some that I will not tell from my time here. For the young people, for the right amount of money, I could tell you a lot of really good stories about some here, people around here. Uh, I, oh, I, I was here the very first service held in this building. I think some of you also may have been way back when. I was part of Gethsemane Baptist when it was on Orange Avenue in Paramount. I think now it's apartments or houses. And I remember way back then, it probably doesn't happen now, but the sound system was such way back when that every once in a while a trucker would go by and the pastor was in the middle of his message and a trucker's message would come blaring across the service in the middle of the message. It was the teenager's favorite part of the message because we were all wondering what's he going to say over the loudspeaker. I I remember my last time I was standing here on this platform was the day I was married. My wife and I were married here. Joe and Becky were married here. And uh, my brother, Russ and Angie, they were all married here. So this is a very, very special place to us. And again, I want to thank Brother Reynolds for the invitation tonight. I invite you tonight to take your Bible to the book of James. James chapter 1, if you will. James chapter 1. And we're really just going to focus on one verse James chapter 1, and it's going to make it very easy on you, just find verse number 1 and you've done your job. James 1 and verse number 1. Once you find that, we see these words in the Bible. James, and mark the next phrase, because it's very significant to this book, most importantly, but to the message tonight. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. To finish his introduction, let's go ahead and read verse 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for a church like this that has stood for truth, stood for right, and had a compassion for souls for many, many years. 
I thank you for Pastor Reynolds and his dedication to this church family. It's evident in just spending a few minutes visiting with him earlier, how much he loves this church family and the work of the Lord. And I pray a special blessing upon him. I pray for this church family that you would continue to use them tonight and the days ahead. And Father, I pray right now in our focus that you would use me in this message, however you would see fit. Father, I just want to be your vessel to be emptied out for your people. Move me out of the way. And Father, may people see Christ tonight and the message that our Lord has for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever stopped to consider the people God used in the Bible? Have you ever read the book of Genesis? I won't embarrass anyone by asking you to raise your hand, but most of you have probably read it. If you read the stories of lives and of people and of families, there's one particular takeaway of many that I would bring to you tonight about the book of Genesis, is that if God could use those people, there's hope for me. There are some messed up people in the book of Genesis. Have you thought about some of the people God called to walk with him? Think of John, the apostle John. Many people today know him as the apostle of love because of John 3:16 for God so loved the world. First, second, third John, Jude, Revelation, and he's known as the apostle of love. Do you know what Jesus called him and his brother? The sons of thunder. Any of you in here have a temper of any kind? A temper you bad? I'm the only one. Good. Okay. You have a temper? Follow the life of the Apostle John. John was the one that when people rejected Jesus, it was he and his brother who said, Lord, they will not have us. Would it be okay to call down fire from heaven and consume them right now? That's a temper. Yet God worked in his life to such a degree that many people today call him the Apostle of Love. What about Peter? Simon Peter, a rugged old fisherman. But we think of him today as a great man of God, but think about Peter back then. Peter had what people today would call hoof and mouth disease, open mouth, insert foot. If he could say something the wrong way, Peter could do it. Any of you like that at all in here? What about Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene possessed of seven evil spirits. There are other things people say about Mary that the Bible never says, so I choose not to go there. But it does say seven evil spirits. God saved her. What about, what about Paul, who was known as Saul? Persecuting the church. The man who in later years said before he was saved, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Yet God used him, and most of us today would say there's not been a greater Christian to walk the face of this earth than the Apostle Paul. I want to ask you this. Can God take anyone and work in their life and use them for his glory? I want to tell you tonight that every one of us and I know this particularly in my life. I love being a preacher. I love pastoring people. It's not always the funnest job in the world. 
but I love it. I personally believe I have the greatest job in all the world. But I think every usher should be able to say to themselves, I have the greatest job in all the world. I think every Sunday school teacher should be able to say, I have the greatest job in all the world. Every staff member, every deacon, every choir member, everyone in the service of the Lord should be able to say, I have the greatest job in all the world. Because I want us to consider the man for whom this book is named tonight. And the man named the first word of the book, James. Very common name. There might even be a James or a Jim in here tonight. Very common name, but he was an uncommon person. When it comes to it, there's no introduction other than James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question would be this, who is he? Who is James? Well, some people might speculate. I mentioned John the Apostle earlier. John had a brother, and John's name, brother's name was? So could it have been him? Well, there's one big flaw with that. In the book of Acts, before this would have been written, James was beheaded. And I don't know about you, but it seems difficult to me for a dead man to write a book. So I think it's safe to say that that man is out. There was another man in the New Testament. He was a disciple, follower of Christ in his earthly ministry. We know him as James, son of Alphaeus. He was also known as James the Less. The reason why, honestly, is there's not much known about him. His name is mentioned among the list of disciples. There's some few historical stories that we think might be true, may not be, but as far as the pages of God's Word, we don't know much about him. And quite honestly, if you had somebody come to you, and you didn't see his face, and you didn't know who it was speaking to you, but you heard the name Pastor Reynolds. How many of you think there might be a few more Pastor Reynolds around California? I know this, there's not many Pastor Counts. People ask me all the time, what's your last name? Counts. What is it? Counts. What is it? Counts. Because it's not very common. There are five, I think, Joel Counts in the entire country. I like that. I go to the doctor's office and they call for Joel. There's only one guy standing up in the room. Happened one time, another guy stood up. We, we, had, we became fast friends. You're Joel too. Nice to meet you. Which Joel? Joel Counts. That was me. No doubt. Now, if it's Joel Smith, we'd have to look at each other again. But somebody comes to you with a name and says, you can't see him. Or maybe it's in a letter form, so you don't know who it is, but it says Pastor, Pastor Reynolds or Brother Reynolds. With no other introduction, you would probably make a safe, safe assumption, wouldn't you? And you'd probably be right that it's this Pastor Reynolds. Well, the introduction to the book helps us identify that it's somebody that these people knew fairly well. And it is a man who has a burden, has a heart for the 12 tribes in verse 1 that are scattered abroad. The Jewish people. And there's really only one person that fits that bill, even with a common name like James. And it is a man who had one of the most unique relationships 
in all of history. And a lot of people don't realize, I'm sure the majority of you do, that Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Matthew 13 would tell us in verse 55 and 56, he had brothers, half-brothers. Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father, we would say. But these were half-brothers, and there was a Joseph, there was a Simon, there was a Judas, and it says, and his sisters, so there's at least more than one, there's at least two. And what do you think the name of the fourth brother was? It was James. And by all accounts and by all understanding, the man who writes this book that we hold in our hands tonight, who was led by inspiration of the Spirit of God, is James. What a unique relationship, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. But there's more to his story. In John chapter 7, you read the first few verses there, and you find that Jesus' siblings rejected Jesus in his earthly ministry. He began as an unbeliever. Let me ask you this question. How many of you began this earthly life as an unbeliever? Easy question. That's all of us. When you were born, you did not know Christ. Or you may have been safe in Jesus. But there came a day you too needed to be saved. Same is true of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. In fact, you could make a pretty good case, and I mean no disrespect to the name of our Savior, you can make a good case in, Bible, in the Bible that James and his brothers and sisters thought Jesus was mad, as in kind of crazy. Why? How many of you have come to this place? No matter what you do or where you go, you're never famous to your sibling. You're never a big deal to your closest family members. You ever found that to be true? And there's James and all these, and Jesus, what is he doing? They're calling him the miracle worker. We've seen what he's done, but now he's proclaiming himself to be the son of God. But something changed. And the reality is, it's the same thing that changed for every one of us. Something changed. In Acts chapter number one, we find that there's an assembly of people meeting and they are the early followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus has now ascended back to the Father. And among them, it says, is Mary and his brethren. And somewhere, something, which I believe we can readily define, because it's the same thing that happened to us, happened in the life of James and his brother. From Judas, who we believe is likely the writer of what we call the book of Jude, to Joseph, to Simon, to his sisters. And there's one unique event, unique to the history of all mankind, that happened to their brother, that they looked and said, he calls himself the Son of God? To where not much later down the road, there was no more question mark. They said, he is the son of God. And more than my brother, he took away my sins. More than my, more than my brother, he is the savior of all mankind who died on that cross. Go with me from James 1 and quickly go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians 15. How many of you know what this chapter is commonly called in the Bible? 
Hebrews 11 is known as the faith chapter or the hall of faith. 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. If there's a description given to 1 Corinthians 15, it is the chapter of that something that happened. It's the chapter on the doctrine of the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel message in verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Did you catch in there? There's some in groups, some in large groups. There's a couple, including James, his half-brother, who get a personal visit from Jesus Christ. I want to tell you tonight that the thing that happened in James' life is the same thing that happened in our life. Our story is much like James, though his is unique to ours, in that he was an unbeliever who became a believer in Christ because Jesus rose again. Jesus lives and if there's something that's going to convince a half-brother that this really is the Son of God is this, let that brother die. And you know he died. And they buried him. And they did all the burial rites. And then he saw him again. Not a spirit, but in a glorified body. That he told Thomas, hey Thomas, touch these scars. Thrust your hand into my side. That's what changed him from unbelieving to believing. But there's something else. Something that all of us need. From believing, he went to following. In this case, I believe, and you can base this in Scripture, that James became the leader, or we would say today, the pastor of the early church at Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 1 describes Paul's early journey with Christ. He went out into the desert, was taught in a school by the Lord himself. And then he came back and he fellowshiped with one man in particular. It was the leader of that early church, Pastor James. In Acts chapter number 15, there was a dispute. It's one of the great chapters in all the Bible if you are a Gentile. How many of you happen to be a Gentile? Which means, if you don't know, that means you're not a Jew. Okay? If you're a Gentile, be thankful Acts 15 is in the Bible. Because there were people, one, disputing that Gentiles could be saved... But the majority of them were disputing that said, hey, if you're a Gentile and you get saved, then you need to behave like a Jew because being a Christian is an extension of what we believe as Jews. We now just believe that Jesus is Messiah. He's the Savior who came. So if you become a believer, you've not just converted to Jesus, you've converted to this, and you need to do this and obey this and obey this and obey this. But wait a minute, doesn't Scripture say, for by grace are you saved through faith? And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so there's another side. And I want you to know, you read Acts 15, you look for big names in the New Testament. They were there. Peter's there, Paul's there, Barnabas is there, leaders in the church are there. But in verse number 15, everyone kept silence when one person spoke. And one person in this Jerusalem council at the church at Jerusalem said, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. 
Before we identify who that is, who would that be in a church assembly, no matter who is there? Maybe somebody well-known that you've heard of is there from another solid Baptist church. Kind of like Peter and John and all these others were there. But one person stands up and says, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Who would that be? I'd be the pastor. I don't think that he'd do this. In fact, I'm fairly certain that he wouldn't. I think the only way that he would is if I just went crazy doctrinally in the message, and I don't believe that's going to happen, is if I was speaking, one person could stand up and say, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Somebody could do that, but the one people are going to listen to in this church is your pastor. And James gets up and James speaks. And later on, he says, wherefore my sentence is. Who does that? The pastor. Who was the person in Acts 15 who did that? It was James. This James. And he followed by leading. But all of us are called to be followers of Jesus Christ. I speak, and when I get the privilege to speak in our church, week after week after week after week, I started there when I was 19 years old. I was a 19-year-old youth, youth pastor. There are still many people in that church from that day. I never correct one of them. And I know, and here I encourage this everywhere. I, I believe this. I believe not because of, of who the person is, but because of the office and the way the Word of God holds it. I believe this. Call your pastor pastor or brother. I don't believe that uh, the office of the pastor should be brought down. But there are people who have known me so long in that church that quite often, you know what they call me? And it doesn't bother me whatsoever. Personally, it doesn't bother me. They come to me and they say, hey, Joel, how you doing? I don't look at them and go, you call me pastor. You know why? One, it's just kind of my temperament, really. But the other thing is this, I look into their eyes and there's people who gave of their sweat and their tears and their label, uh, their, their, their ability and their strength to build the actual building that I'm standing in to preach in. And the same thing holds true tonight. There are people who are faithful and you may not be in, quote, the full-time ministry, but every Christian is a full-time minister. James. Because it's not about names. It's not about a label. Christian tonight, I want you to consider this. The way he refers to himself in this book, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, consider these words. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about somebody greater than us. Someone that we once did not believe in, whether we were saved at five or 50. We were non-believers. We had not received the gift of salvation, but now, not because of us, because of him we have. And you may say that my responsibility, the way I follow God, isn't the way others do. Don't, the Bible says comparing ourselves with ourselves, we become fools. Don't, don't compare what you do or don't do. The only thing you ought to do is this. I believe this with all my heart. If you know that you can be serving God in a greater capacity or taking a greater step of faith, and you're not, I challenge you tonight, serve him in a greater way. But it's not about your name. It's not about your title. The role is never bigger than the goal. It takes a church family. And every single member is vital. Your role is vitally important. <laughs> Several years ago, 
I mentioned my brother. Some of you will remember him. He also was here years ago. Most of you probably will not. Most of you probably have no idea who I am. But he's 10 years older than me. When he went off to college, I was still in second grade. Growing up, we didn't really know each other quite well. And as we got a little bit older, he invited me to join him and a couple of friends who go to the Pebble Beach Pro-Am golf tournament every year. Now, he and I were too cheap, cheap to actually go to the real tournament, and we have not near enough money to actually play that course. But you can buy a ticket and walk the grounds, and we would have fun, and my brother and I, we would try to meet as many golfers as we can. And I, if you're a golf fan, I could name a name, and you'd probably recognize it. But we'd meet them and say hi, and we'd, you know, get autographs, and I have one, you know, kind of pennant from a flag in my office that I have. And he has an older friend that went there with us, and he couldn't walk the grounds as much, and he'd just sit on a bench, and my brother and I would go off for hours, get all these autographs. We'd come back to the bench where he was sitting, and the friend of my brother, he got the exact same autographs. He just waited for them to come to him. But there was one guy who came who was not a golfer. He was not a golf fan. He went because my brother, from his church, he invited him to go with him. Great guy, just the kind of person you make friends with instantly. When we got there, we're running down the name of the list, and it says Pro-Am, there's some celebrities there, so we're into the athletes, and we're into that. He sees one name, and it wasn't in any wrong way or a bad way. He was a political junkie. Any political junkies out there into politics? He was. He saw one name, and he was determined from the first moment he saw that name, he was going to meet this person. They're not well-known now. They're not even in the news now, but a few years ago they were. Her name is Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State several years ago. And on day one, this man decided, I'm meeting Condoleezza Rice. And everywhere we go, we're meeting golfers and athletes, and he's looking for one person. Again, not in a bad way, just likes politics, and he's looking for one person. Day one goes by. All day long, Condoleezza Rice, Condoleezza Rice, Condoleezza Rice. And we're looking at him like, we sure hope he gets to meet her before he leaves. By day two, we've moved from Condoleezza Rice to a nickname. He's now calling her Condi. I've got to meet Condi. I've got to meet Condi. I've got to meet. And we're going, I really hope he's going to be devastated. So we're all looking for Condi. Day number three, he finds out she's practicing on the course, and Mission Impossible became possible. He tracked her down on the course. He was gone for three solid hours looking for her. Three hours later, he comes back. I looked at my brother and I said, do you think he found her? And my brother sees the smile on his face from 100 yards out and goes, oh, he found her. He's walking up. And my brother goes, did you get a meter? He said, oh, yeah, it was great. Now, let me tell you what happened, that because he was so intent on meeting this one political person that he was totally oblivious to. He said, it was great. He said, followed her for four holes. And he said, I want you to know, her security team was just so friendly. We soon realized that they're doing an informal interrogation on this man because they're concerned that she keeps, he keeps following her. 
He said it was great. She hit her ball in the bushes, and me and the security guys were just out there looking for the golf ball. And he said, they talked with me, and they asked me, now, where do you live? And I told them, and how many kids do you have? And it was just a great conversation. We walk away, and my brother said, I am so embarrassed. He said, this man's getting interrogated by national security on the golf course. And he was so intent. Now, that's a celebrity, and that's somebody well-known. I could almost guarantee you that about two-thirds of the adults out here are going, I know who she is. About a third of the adults go, I think it's a familiar name, and probably none of the teenagers have any idea who I was just talking about. And am I just about right? Am I about right? Why? People come and go. Names aren't important. Their influence on our lives can be. The well-known person today is unknown and obscure tomorrow, but I want you to know the one person who is the eternal, the infinite, the holy Savior of this world. And if you're a believer, the Savior of your heart. And the one whose name does mean something. Our identification is very simple. It's not about what my name is. It's about who I am. I am, praise God, a child of the King. That's who I am. Praise God eternally for that. I watch British royalty every once in a while. If you don't take any offense to this, if you follow British royalty, I watch them and I hear about all their hardships. And I look and I go, what exactly is difficult about that job? I'll trade you. And we look at royalty. Christian, listen to me. Listen well. If you know Jesus Christ, you're a child of the King. Where do we stand? Praise God for this. Who I am, a child of the King. Where do I stand? Where do you stand? Forgiven. For how long? Forever and ever and ever. But here's what we want to get at. What we do. James, look at those next two words, a servant. The greatest job in all the world simply is this, to be a servant of the Most High God. That word there, servant, when you study it out, it means a bond slave. It means one who says, I do not belong to me. I belong to another. So we see James, and James would be first in line with us to say, it's not about me. It's about the one who gave himself for me. We see those words, a servant. We would recognize, I don't belong to me. I belong to another. The servant in Bible days, or the bond slave, or bond servant, was totally dependent totally dependent on their master. And Christian, that hasn't changed. You might get a paycheck. You might have a house that you call your own. You might have a vehicle that you drive. You might have a family that you call yours, but all of it belongs to him. And we learn to serve totally dependent on him regardless of our circumstances. 
And our circumstances the last few years, let's face it, whether it's down here in Long Beach or out there with the Joshua Trees in Victorville, it's been crazy. And California's been a crazy state. And a lot of us have heard about California being a crazy state. But how many of us recognize also California is one of the greatest mission fields in all the world? There are 19 cities across the state of California that I know of, that I've been made aware of, of a population of 100,000 people or more that have no independent Baptist witness in it. It's one of the great mission fields in all the world. But there have been some crazy circumstances. May I tell you, I'm thankful that on your prayer bulletin tonight, I noticed some names. Pray for our leaders. And I saw the name Governor Gavin Newsom. I saw the name President Joe Biden. I'm glad you have that name. I know this, I mention those names in Victorville, and every once in a while I see people's eyes twitching. In some cases, I rightfully understand where the feeling comes in, but do we understand that those two names that I gave you represent lives that will spend forever somewhere? And the greatest thing they have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's been crazy. I preached out of the back of a Dodge Ram pickup to people sitting in a parking lot in their cars, tuned in to a short, close-wave FM radio station that when they liked a point I made, they honked their horn. I preached on the back in an outdoor service that we had out there at 8.30 in the morning because we live in the desert. And I thought, nobody's going to show up. They did. Help me realize this isn't about me, it's his. On the back of one of our business owners' flatbed trucks that is chromed out, I was preaching in sunglasses because I was blinded. I didn't know which way I was looking. Into the sun so that the few hundred people that are out there in their vehicles and under pop-up tents, they weren't sitting in the sun. I had a wonderful tan that summer. I had never been tanned like that. It was only from here up, so it's kind of awkward if I wore a T-shirt. But I stood out there, sleeves rolled up. It was Memorial Day weekend or one of those kind of weekends. They put bunting on the back of the flatbed truck. I thought the service went great. They're like, Pastor, look at these pictures. Look at the cars. This was unique. And I'm in there going, I just want to be inside. And I looked at the pictures, and there's bunting and me and sunglasses and rolled up sleeves and a white shirt and a tie. And I looked at them, and I said, Guys, Next time, tell me when I look like I'm running for mayor. But regardless of the circumstances, because for every Christian, look at verse 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Verse 13, temptations turns to tempt dead. And we find in James chapter 1, that those first few verses speaking of testings, trials, and temptations are speaking of the trials and testings in life. I don't need to ask, raise, ask you to raise your hand if you've been through some trials recently. We all have. And some of yours are personal and they hurt deep, as are mine. And you will be tempted. Let no man say when he is tempted. If you're saying if you're tempted, you're lying to everybody. You're being tempted in ways that is bait for you. And I want you to know that when you are tempted and when you are tested, when you are tested in your faith, later on in this chapter it speaks of tempted to do that which is wrong. I want you to know you're going to fall back on what you really believe. 
You're going to fall back on what you've trained yourself to do. You're going to fall back on what's here and what's here. Several years ago, I was in Barnes & Noble, and we have a growing Spanish ministry in our church, and I wanted to relate to them better. I did great here in Gethsemane Baptist Christian School, learning how to do all the grammar. I couldn't speak it. I could probably take a sheet of Spanish and figure out what it says. Don't ask me to speak it or listen to it. So I thought, I want to speak it better. I want to get to some conversational Spanish. So it said, learn Spanish through music. And I thought, that's great. I love to sing. It's a CD. I can put it in my car. I drive around a lot. And I can do this the easy way. I can just listen to it and get it. And it was great. I got through the first few lessons. Some of them I knew. I knew my numbers. Then it got to this, and I thought, I can use this in ministry. And it came across one, and I, I have to sing you the jingle. It went simply like this. Mucho gusto. It's nice to meet you. I played it over and over and over. And then I put it from music. Mucho gusto. And I would sing it and sing it and sing it. And then I started working on really appropriately saying it. Mucho gusto. I try to drop mucho. I, I, mucho gusto. I mean, I'm just, I'm working on this. And I know I sounded terrible, but I thought I was great because I was all by myself and no one was laughing at me. But I was working and I worked up the nerve and I said, I'm going to find a couple from the Spanish ministry that I've not met and I'm going to do it. Mucho gusto. It's nice to meet you. Mucho gusto. I'm practicing, practicing. I see the couple. The day came. I was ready to go. I'm walking across the parking lot. They were going to the Spanish chapel. I was walking across the parking lot. And I'm like, it's now or never. If you don't start putting into practice what you're learning. I walked right up to them. I shook the man's hand. And I did exactly this. I said, mucho gusto. I sang it. They were very polite. They looked at me like I had gone insane. And all I did is I walked away and I said, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> Plan was gone. Got to put in the hard work. You know what I did? I fell back on what I trained myself to do. And some Christians, there's no college course for it, but we in our lives, we served, but we gave into that temptation. We served, but when the test came, we fell back on bitterness. We fell back on anger. We fell back on criticism. We fell back onto our quitting because that's what we had trained ourselves to do. We often need to be retrained in this one thing. James, a servant of God and of the Lord of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly, when it says Lord, he says, James, I'm a servant of the Lord. It means ownership. My favorite word in all the Bible, and they're all wonderful, is redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed. He bought me. Now I belong to Jesus. Lord represents ownership. If Christians would just settle that one thing right there, it would transform your service for God. I do it because I'm His. Authority. Lordship is, at its very basic, authority. And the Lord says, you can't serve more than one master. It says particularly, you can't serve God and mammon, God and money. But Christian, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and self. It's either going to be God or it's going to be self. And James made the decision we need to be saved, said me to decide. This one who was a non-believer, who became a believer, who is now a follower, said, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because it also means this. The Lord takes responsibility for a servant. Christian, he has you. He's never lost you. And he's never forgotten you. And undoubtedly tonight, I'm speaking to some who are hurting tonight. Some who are struggling tonight. Some who may have quit. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. Some who have given in. Some who no longer want to say, Jill, a servant, or Tom, a servant, or like James, James, a servant. It's I once was, or it's half-hearted. I want to challenge you tonight. Servants, keep serving. Those on the sideline, get back in. Those that are young Christians, there is nothing like serving Jesus. Oh, it's not, I'm not going to paint a flowery picture for you, but there's no greater road of blessing in life than the Christian who serves. Because the servant has one direction. It's to face one way. In Hebrews 12, 2, the Bible gives us that way, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. James was known as James the Just. He was known as old camel knees because of his prayer life. But why was it? He faced one way. He died a martyr's death. History, not the Bible, would say, so we don't know exactly what happened. That perhaps he was cast from the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with clubs because of the stand he took for Jesus Christ. Christian, will you take a stand? Will you say, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? I end with this. All of us who are saved can look back on people who served them. That's why this place is special to me. That's why this place means something to me. And even here, I could name names that haven't been heard in years because they've moved on or they've moved up to be with the Lord. I don't know where they are, maybe, or what they're doing, but they made a difference in my life. I have a baseball coach sitting right there from the GBC Little League. Taught me invaluable lessons, yes, about a game, but about being a man and about following God. Larry Slater, hope you know the difference you made in my life. Hope you know that as a 10-year-old boy, when I'd struck out four times in a game, I was so upset at myself. Came back in the dugout and tossed the bat down. He may remember this. And I took the batting helmet and I slung it. I was so mad. He looked at, he didn't look at me and go, oh. He looked at me and he said, Joel, don't you ever do that again. He never spoke to me that way. He said, first of all, I bought that batting helmet. And he said, but that's not what you do as a young man. That's not what you do as a ball player. He taught me more about being a man for the Lord than he did about swinging a bat. And I have teachers, and I'm glad somebody like that, in my, and there are others in this room. Your example, I watched and there are others who watched, and you may never hear from them this side of heaven, but you made a difference in somebody's life. You look back, but you look ahead. You can still make a difference, and young people determine that you'll be that kind of man and make a difference in somebody's life. The greatest job in all the world is to simply say, I am a servant. And if the good people of Gethsemane Baptist Church would say, to the glory of God, not to myself, I'm a child of the king. I stand forgiven, but I see myself as a servant of the most high God. If you're doing it, keep serving. If you've stepped away, get back in.
If you're young in Christ or young in life, get involved. There's nothing like serving Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do this, please. Would you stand together, please? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. One simple.